Hi, welcome to Creeps and Crime Storytime. My name is Charlie and I'm here today with a case and Halloween is coming. If you're listening to it when it releases, Halloween is very close. Um, so I wanted to do something today that was kind of seasonal and relevant. This is a story that a lot of podcasts cover around Halloween. The perpetrator has garnered spooky nicknames for himself, such as the Candyman or the Man Who Killed Halloween. And with monikers like this, it's no wonder that this case gets told a lot at this time of year in the true crime community. Before we get started, I do just want to mention that I have set up my coffee page. I have had a few donations so far, which is absolutely incredible. Um, I really appreciate that people appreciate what I'm doing. So for those of you that don't know, I do all of the research, writing, recording, editing and distributing of this podcast by myself and I don't have ads on it at the moment. I'd like to keep it ad-free if possible. Um, I've been doing it this way for a year so there isn't actually any direct income from the podcast itself and I spend an awful lot of time on it. So if you have um, $2 or £2 spare and you would just like to thank me, if God that sounds so shit, um... Uh, I don't know how people do this without feeling like shit about it, but basically, if you would like to thank me financially, or support the podcast, or make me happy for doing all this fucking work, um, then you can go to coffee.com, and it's spelled ko-fi.com slash creepsandcrimestorytime, and you can just buy me a coffee, and that would be a really magnificent, wonderful way for me to know that you enjoy the podcast Um, If you don't want to give me any money, that's fucking fine. You don't have to whatsoever. What I would really love is if you could go to Apple Podcasts or Amazon Music or Spotify or wherever you're playing this and just leave me a five stars. That would be really nice because I do try really hard to make this good and I would like it. Anyway, that's enough of me talking about me. Let's get to the case. So we're going all the way back to 1974 on a Halloween night and we're going to talk about a family. This particular family lived in Deer Park in Texas, and was made up of Ronald, his wife Daneen, and their two children, Timothy and Elizabeth. And I can already tell that you're picturing a very all-American family, and you'd be right. Ronald worked as an optician, and he also was a much-loved member of the local Baptist church. He sung in the church choir, doing solos and things, and he also ran the church bus program, so he was all around one of those good community guys. And there isn't much info about Daneen, but she seems like a pretty solid lady, so there's no shady business going on with Daneen. She looked after her children, and I think she was a stay-at-home mother to Timothy and Elizabeth. On the Halloween in question, Timothy was eight years old, and Elizabeth was only five. So, The peak ages for going out and getting into cute costumes, trick-or-treating, and generally getting in on the spooky Halloween fun. The 31st of October 1974 was dark and rainy, which personally is my favourite Halloween. I love the rain. I, I love the rain so much. I think just listening to it is atmospheric and relaxing, and being in it is exciting, and I just love rainy days. I love rainy nights, and Halloween is my favourite season, so thinking about a rainy Halloween night is just the fucking tits. Like, it's peak. Peak Halloween. And this was a rainy one, but it didn't stop the O'Briens from getting into the Halloween spirit. Ronald took his two young children for a dinner at a friend's house, followed by trick-or-treating. 
Ronald O'Brien knew his buddy Jim Bates from church, and the two families would hang out at church together and also go around to each other's houses. Jim had two children of his own, Mark and Kim, and they were of course friends with Timothy and Elizabeth. After dinner, the group rediscussed trick-or-treating plans as the rain was getting heavier, and one of Jim's children, I've read it was Kim, I think it was Kim, she decided to stay at home instead of going out. So three children, plus two dads, went out trick-or-treating in Jim's neighbourhood in Pasadena. Rain or no rain. Timothy was wearing a brand new Planet of the Apes costume, which he was very pleased with, and Elizabeth was dressed in a cute princess outfit. They made their way around the neighbourhood, collecting sweets from neighbours and greeting other trick-or-treaters as they passed by. They ended up only visiting a few streets, and the dads agreed that Jim would wait on the sidewalk, and Ronald would go to the doors with the children to collect sweets. This plan was going very well, and the little group reached we- <sighs> fucking hell. The little group reached four one one two Dunrail, which is a fucking weird name for a street, but I I don't make the rules. They knocked on the door, but nobody answered. The house looked very dark, so it was assumed that nobody was at home, which is a fair assumption to make. So the children ran back over to Jim, who was waiting there on the sidewalk for them. Ronald hung back, however, in the alcove of the dark house. So, I googled this house, and I've seen pictures on the internet, so I think the house at the moment is currently up for sale, or it was up for sale only a couple of years ago, and there's still pictures of it on some website where it lists houses for sale. So, you can just go and google 4112 John Royal, and you can get a picture of this house, so you can have a look at it if you want and see what I mean. So, the... Next to the front door, on the right-hand side, there's like a wall that juts out, so it's kind of like, it's like an extended bit of the house comes out to that side. So if Jim was standing on the pavement on the right side of the door, I don't think he would have been able to see the front door because that's where the wall came out, that's where that extra room comes forward. So he wouldn't have been able to see the door. And anyway, after about 30 seconds or so, Ronald came over to join the group and he had a few giant pixie sticks. He waved the pixie sticks in the air, telling Jim something like, wow, your neighbours sure are rich giving out such big candies like this. And before too long, the group were done because it was pissing down and they stopped off back at the Bates home. The dads made sure that the knight's collected candy was distributed and Ronald gave each of the children, including Kim who stayed home, a giant pixie stick from the house that was dark and quiet. One ten-year-old boy who also went to the the Baptist church, he stopped by the Bates house to do trick-or-treating himself, and Ronald gave him an extra stick because he had five. So the, the, the mystery house gave him five big pixie sticks. He gave one to each of him and Jim's kids, and then the leftover one he gave to the next child who came trick-or-treating, and it was this boy who went to the church. So Ronald took Timothy and Elizabeth home, And once they got back, his wife, Daineen, went out to go visit a friend. So I don't know how long she was out for, but she came back. She she came back at some point, but I know she popped out for a bit and then came home. So Ronald got his two children ready for bed, and they asked their dad very nicely if they could have some Halloween candy before they went to bed. And Ronald was like, sure you can, because, I mean... I'm not quite, I mean, I guess you can have one piece of Halloween candy. If, you, if you've been out trick-or-treating, you can have, like, one sweet before you go to bed. But I just, I'm not sure that I'm, I'm not really a gonna-have-kids kind of girl. But if I did, 
I'm not sure that I would be like, yeah, absolutely have a buttload of sugar before you go to straight to bed. That sounds like a wonderful idea. But I suppose it is Halloween, so if you can't do this kind of shit on Halloween, when can you? Anyway, that's not the point. The point is, so each um, each of Ronald's children got to choose one piece of candy to eat. And I'm not sure what Elizabeth had, but Timothy had his eye on one of the giant pixie sticks and his dad said yes. So Timothy undid the top of the pixie stick and tried to eat some, but he complained to his dad that he couldn't get the sugar out. So, just gonna have a sec. If you're not sure what a pixie stick is, it's like a big giant straw that's sealed at both ends, and inside it is a load of coloured and sometimes flavoured sugar. And that's basically it. So you unseal one end and then just like knock it back and go to town on it. So there's a UK version that I can't remember the name of right now. Um, and I can see them in my head though, but I don't think they're called pixie sticks over here. I think they're called something else. Um, but whenever Sophie and I went to the corner shop when we were little, I never bothered with them because I preferred sweets that you could actually eat, like gummy ones. Like I preferred like chewy ones. I don't like, I didn't like just that it wasn't fun for me. Um, so I never got them, but I know they are a thing. Um, anyway, so Timmy couldn't get the sugar out of the tube. It was getting stuck. So he couldn't get it out. And he was like, dad, I can't get it out. So his dad rolled the tube between his hands to get to like unclump the sugar. And then Timothy ate some. And he then complained that it didn't taste very good. So Ronald got him some Kool-Aid to take the taste away. And that's why you need an ass load more sugar right before you go to bed in some Kool-Aid. So soon after Timothy finished his drink, however, he said that he didn't feel very well. And really soon after that, he began vomiting. So he went into the bathroom to be sick. But very shortly afterwards, he started having convulsions. Very, very suddenly. Ronald called an ambulance and Timothy was taken to hospital. And very sadly... Poor little Timothy was pronounced dead in less than an hour. He couldn't be saved. The police became involved. One rookie police officer present at the house before the ambulance arrived remembers being scarred by watching Timothy convulse and dry heave. And holy shit, that would stay with you forever. That poor police officer, that must have stayed with him forever. I don't think the police came around immediately because they suspected... I don't know if they suspected foul play literally as soon as... Um, Ronald made the phone call to emergency services. What I think happened is probably a, a police officer was closer than an ambulance. And obviously police officers, you would fucking hope, even in the 70s, were all at least first aid trained. So maybe that it was kind of quiet on the police front, but an ambulance was further away. And I'm guessing they just sent a police officer around while they were waiting for the ambulance to administer at least some basic first aid. But yeah, that's just, that's purely conjecture. That's just me making it up. But that's what I probably assume where am i up to yeah so mike hinton is a guy is a he's a guy he's the former county prosecutor at nearby harris county and he was working the police intake this evening so mike hinton remembers getting the phone call so once timothy died people were like hang on this is kind of weird so then the police became like involved involved so he got a call from the pasadena police department about timothy's death so mike hinton called his buddy up joseph jack Chimsick, De Chimsick, who was the chief medical examiner in Harris County. In fuck, I'm getting all my words. Who was the chief medical examiner in Harris County that Hinton had worked with before? So he told him of the situation, and I'm just going to call him Doctor Joseph. So I'm just going to call him by his first name because that last name is going to do me in. So he asked Doctor Joseph, "Hey, this kid's died, and he's been convulsing and foaming at the mouth and throwing up, and now he's suddenly really quickly dead. What?" 
do you think of this, Mr. Medical Examiner? What's your vibe? So Dr. Joseph asked Mike Hinton, he was like, can you call the mortuary staff at Pasadena Hospital and ask them what the boy's breath smells like? And then, so Mike Hinton called the called the morgue and was like, hey, what does the kid's breath smell like? And then he got back to Dr. Joseph and apparently Timothy's breath smelled like almonds, which I'm sure to you armchair detectives out there is not a shock. So we all know what's coming. We all know what that means. So at the hospital, in attempts to diagnose Timothy when he first arrived in order to try and save his life, fluids had been taken from the boy. Once they were tested, alarmingly high amounts of cyanide were found in them, confirming Dr. Joseph's theory. In Timothy's stomach fluid, 16 milligrams of cyanide was found. 16 milligrams in his stomach. The amount of cyanide which had been absorbed into his blood before he passed away. So there was 16 milligrams sitting in his stomach. His body had only had time to absorb a tiny bit that killed him. And that amount was 0.4 milligrams. The amount of cyanide required to kill an adult person is half of that. 0.2 milligrams. So it's no wonder Timothy died so quickly. He was overdosed by a huge amount. So just honestly, I can't get over this. So the amount of cyanide required to kill an average adult person, so like an adult male person, so like my husband who is like six foot tall and kind of shredded, it would take 0.2 milligrams of cyanide to kill him. Timothy's bloodstream had absorbed 0.4, so double that, but in his stomach was 16, not 0.16, 16. That's so, that's such a huge amount. And it's, and he's so little, he was eight years old. So it's no wonder that he died basically instantly. And once the police found this out, they were freaking out. So they raced to get the remaining four pixie sticks out of circulation before anything bad could happen to the other children. So the pixie sticks were successfully taken from Elizabeth O'Brien, the two Bates children, and the 10-year-old boy who'd come to the Bates house. And I believe it was the last boy who'd actually fallen asleep with the pixie stick in his hand. He hadn't been able to get it open and had fallen asleep with it. And this is something that Mike Hinton has said haunts him, knowing that it was the seal on this pixie stick that was between that boy living and dying. But what about the seals themselves? Could the pixie sticks have been tampered with? So, police looked into this. Because, I mean, I guess he could have got cyanide poisoning from somewhere else, but it seems unlikely. This is the obvious place to go, so this is where the police went. The plastic straws that make up pixie sticks are heat sealed at both ends, but these were open at one end and had actually been stapled shut. So they're not usually stapled shut, they're normally heat sealed on both sides, but these were heat sealed at one end like normal, staple at the other, which was weird. So it was this staple that the boy couldn't undo. This staple had saved his life, while the cyanide inside had been an attempt to kill him, or any other child unlucky enough to eat it, because the pixie sticks that were collected were tested. And sure enough, lethal amounts of cyanide were found in the top two inches of sugar of all the sticks. So whoever had tampered with the sweets had opened the top, emptied out a little bit of the sugar, emptied out a top of it, because they couldn't be bothered, obviously, to do the whole thing, mixed a shitload of cyanide in the little bit of sugar they emptied, and then stuffed it back in. Didn't, like, shake it or mix it around, it just left it at the top, sitting at the top, and then stapled it shut. And the air getting to the sugar had caused it to clump up inside, which is why Timothy struggled getting it out. 
The police obviously wanted to talk to Ronald rather fucking urgently about which house he'd got the pixie sticks from because he'd accompanied the children to the doors of each home that evening so he had more information than Jim about who lived in which house and which house they got which sweets from. So Jim obviously knew the, the layout of the Pasadena neighbourhood quite well because it was where he lived but he hadn't been the one to pick up the sweets from each home so he could give them a route that they went but beyond that he wasn't really that sure but Ronald was the one that went to the door so you'd think this is the guy this is the guy that can help us out he had trouble remembering which house was which um, and he had trouble remembering which house he got the pixie sticks from police thought this was weird because if you remember it was raining really hard so they hadn't gone to that many houses they'd only been to a couple of streets before it got too heavy and they just gave up and went home so you'd think he'd be able to remember because they only did a couple of streets and as well the pixie stick house was one of the later houses in the evening so it was one near the end so you'd think it's newer in his memory he'd be able to remember it but Ronald insisted that he didn't even see the person inside the house the door opened of the dark premises and only he only saw the arm of the person just holding out the pixie sticks and then he just took them and I guess was like thanks buddy and left the police didn't give up even though this was getting kind of frustrating and obviously there's a bit of a panic going on because they don't know if there's other sweets that have been tampered with. Um, the police department actually put out a basically a huge fucking thing to all the parents in the area to like hand in all of the Halloween candy. All of it, not just pixie sticks, like the whole fucking lot because just in case this madman had tampered with anything else, they didn't want... One child had already died and there were five, I mean, four other sweets that were deadly. The police didn't want to risk anything else getting getting through the cracks, so they had everything collected. Everybody was on high alert. All the parents were freaking out. So they kept going with this, and they took Ronald out a couple more times over the, fo the following day. So the next few days, they kept saying, like, Ronald, come on, let's go out again. Let's see if you can remember anything. Let's try and jog your memory. So they took him out, and he and they were very insistent that he figure something out that he rack his brain and try and get his get his memory going and after a bit of an adventure he finally ended up back at 4112 Dunrail but nobody was home again so Ronald was able to give a very vague description of a man and this actually matched the man who lived there quite well and this guy is called Courtney Melvin so Courtney worked at an airport in Houston as an air traffic controller and it turns out that he was actually working at the airport when the police showed up and arrested him in front of all of his colleagues. However, it turned out that over 200 of Melvin's colleagues could attest that he was, in fact, working the, that Halloween night. So, Courtney Melvin's wife and children were at home when Ronald, Jim and the kids came to call. They'd run out of candy for trick-or-treaters around quarter to seven, so they'd stopped answering the door and turn the lights off. So they'd done that whole, like, shit, we're out of sweets. Let's just pretend that we're not home. Um, so that was their approach. Courtney Melvin, the dad, was actually working at the airport that night. 200 people at the airport were like, yep, this dude was definitely here. So this kind of ended up being a bit of a dead end, which was not helpful to the police. And they were like, shit, we've arrested this guy in front of loads of people. And it turns out that he's fucking fine. He didn't do anything. So, but still... The police were like, okay, let's take it back a bit. What is with Ronald's story about the mysterious disembodied arm handing out poisoned Halloween candy? Because that's still weird. Police began to look at Ronald's story under heavy scrutiny now because they were like, okay, things are not adding up. We're not entirely sure about this. 
Only he claimed to have seen anyone answer the door, and he's the one that produced poison pixie sticks to the small group. But this is the thing. Could this small-town church dad have knowingly, knowingly given his son poison on Halloween night, intending to kill him? The thing is, unfortunately, parents hurt their children all the time, and the police know that kind of better than anyone. And after Melvin was cleared, the police had no other person of interest except for Ronald himself. So, the police began to keep an eye on Ronald's behaviour. At Timothy's funeral, Ronald gave a tearful rendition of a hymn in honour of his dead son, because remember, he's a church singy guy, so he was all about the singing, and he was like, you know what, I'm going to do a fucking show-stopping number at my son's funeral. He changed the lyrics of the hymn to include Timothy's name and it was very emotional and it was a huge deal so the th- oh, so for some reason this was filmed I'm not sure if it's common to film parts of funerals I haven't fortunately touch wood I haven't been to many funerals so but I've never none of the ones that I've been to have been filmed apart from obviously post-covid with restrictions and stuff sometimes funerals nowadays get filmed because only i mean especially just after restrictions lifted only so many people were allowed in the church so they got live streamed but you know that's different so now i guess maybe sometimes funerals do get filmed but in the 70s it was not normal to film a funeral and besides if you think about it everyone has cameras now but back then to get a camera was a bit of a fucking hoo-ha. You had to have like a giant fucking camcorder and you had to hire it and it was expensive and then you had to lug it around and you had to get someone to do it for you. And it was kind of a, I'm just kind of, this isn't in my notes, I'm just spitballing. I'm just realising that, yeah, actually, it was a huge pain in the ass to film things in the 70s. So, so yeah, actually, that's kind of weird. And the thing is as well, I'm not quite sure why you'd want to watch parts of a funeral over and over again. Like, It is emotional and it is beautiful and it is obviously a funeral is a tribute to somebody's life but if it was somebody that I was close to I don't think I'd want to watch the funeral again. I don't know. Uh, Man, I I mean everyone's different. Everyone handles these things differently. But anyway, so Ronald wanted it filmed and he made sure that his musical number was filmed. And later on that evening so this is the same day as the funeral So in the evening, after the funeral was done, he wanted his family, who had just buried their son, brother, nephew, he wanted these people, these grieving people, to stay up late to watch that home video, to watch him sing it again. Like, he wanted to play the recording of him singing for his dead son, and for everyone to watch it, and and what, marvel at his amazing singing voice? That is strange, that's egotistical, and it's absolutely not the point of a funeral. And this is the thing, so his grieving family members were like, we kind of don't really want to do this, we're not really in the mood to just sit and watch you sing a song that you sang like three hours ago, can you kind of give us some space? And he actually got annoyed at people. He actually became annoyed and irate because people didn't want to, to watch the video. Um, others around Ronald began to notice that he was seeming to be upset and distressed in public settings, but privately, he was actually very calm and cool when talking about his late son. So Jim Bates, his buddy from church who went trick-or-treating with him that fateful night, recalled how Ronald told him, quote, 
I don't see how they can pin his death on anybody, end quote. Which is a weird fucking thing to say, is it not? That's a weird thing to say. Why would you talk about pinning somebody's... Like, if somebody has handed out poison sweets that killed your kid, if some random stranger has murdered your child, why would you say, oh, I'm not sure how they can pin it on anyone? That's weird. You would hope that they would pin it on someone. You would be hoping for a pinning. I just... It's weird. And the day after the funeral... The day after, the police is digging around yielded some very interesting information. So, what they discovered was that Ronald had in fact got a history for making false insurance claims. He wasn't doing great financially and he had quite a large amount of debt from multiple sources. He was eight months behind on his car payments. Eight months. I'm at what point do they just take your car away? Eight months is a lot of months to have not paid for something, surely? I don't know. I don't have a car, but it seems like surely they would have repossessed it by now. Anyway, he was eight months behind and he was still fucking driving it for some reason. And he also kept getting refused loans because he had a history of not being able to pay anything back. Um, His debt was so according to the court records that I've been able to find, his debt was somewhere between um it was up to a hundred thousand dollars so from all the different sources from what they could figure out because he had money borrowed all over the place so the estimate is somewhere up to about a hundred grand um he also seemed to have trouble sticking to the same job so interestingly in the last 10 years he had worked you know what i want you to guess so have a little guess here so i'm not going to do multiple choice because sophie isn't here and it will be kind of, maybe I'll do it again at some point with our, but like, so just have a guess. So in 10 years, I'll give you a few seconds to think about it. The last decade, so between 1964 and 1974, how many jobs do you think Ronald had worked in? Do you have a number? Okay. So he had worked 21 different jobs. That's fucking insane. 21 different jobs. It actually came out later that around this time, his current workplace, the opticians, was suspecting him of some thievery and was close to firing him. So he was almost at 22 in 10 years. That's that's nuts. So when chatting to some of Ronald's friends and family, it became clear that he was quite candid about his financial problems. So everyone knew that he was monetarily fucked. But interestingly, he told a few people, this is, this is just the thing. So this this guy is not smart. So he told a few people that he was expecting that he would come into money soon and that would help him out a lot. And the police were like, oh, oh, will he now? Will he, will he be expecting to come into money? That's interesting. So, so let's talk about insurance. In January of that year, Ronald took out life insurance policies for everyone in his immediate family. And it wasn't one of those crazy huge payouts. So you hear of some cases where like the husband secretly took out a half a million dollar life insurance policy on his wife and then she mysteriously died in an accident in a boat somewhere. This isn't quite that. So he took out a life insurance policy for him, Daneen, Timothy and Elizabeth. And the payouts were $10,000 for each family member. So that's not insane. That's not that's not crazy. Um, the premium wasn't that big because the payout was relatively small. So their monthly 
premium for the insurance wasn't high because the payout was relatively low in comparison to some of them. But Daneen, even at this point, felt that that even that small premium was too much of an expense on the struggling family's budget. And she also told her husband that she didn't think insurance policies on the children were necessary. Life insurance policies on adults are far more commonplace than on children because the insurance is there to assist with a loss of income that happens if a family member dies. So if a child dies, obviously it's fucking horrific and shit. We're not talking about the emotional side of it. We're talking about the financial side of it. So if a child dies, there's no income to compensate for. So you don't need a big payout for something because you don't have anything to financially compensate that having a missing child you're not losing an income for anything so if so if it was less of a need the family wouldn't financially be worse off and children are generally less at risk of dying than say an older person anyway because on the whole they have fewer health complications and things like that so life insurance on either ronald or daneen would be a far more pressing matter because if one of them died the financial burden would be much greater on the remaining surviving parent so if say, Ronald was killed in a horrible accident, Daneen would need the life insurance money because Ronald wouldn't be working because he'd be dead. So she'd need money to pay for things for the kids and that's where the life insurance comes in and to pay the bills and to pay the house. If Daneen died, Ronald obviously would need to pay for some childcare because Daneen wouldn't be there anymore while he worked. So that's what the insurance would cover and things like that. So yeah, so... I'm sure not a lot of people listening need me to explain how life insurance works because true crime has helped us out with that too. But just in case anyone was wondering why Daneen wouldn't think it was important to have insurance policies on the kids, that's why. Um, So yeah, that was your financial advice from Charlie today. I hope you enjoyed it. So yeah, it's basically, the point is it's kind of unusual for a financially struggling family to take out life insurance policies on children. That's unusual. Even more unusual than this is for one of the parents to secretly take out two more life insurance policies on the behind the other parent's back three weeks before one of the kids gets murdered. And, oh my god, wouldn't you know it, that's exactly what happened. So, on the 3rd of October, Ronald went to another insurance company and was like, hey, I want to take out more policies on my children. So, he had $20,000 policies taken out this time on both Timothy and Elizabeth, but not himself or Daneen, only the children, and apparently he paid for these premiums both in cash. He also didn't tell his wife about these policies. He kept this one hush-hush. In what may now not be too shocking of a revelation, Ronald called his insurance provider at 9am on the 1st of November the day after Timothy was killed, to request a payout. 9am. Literally the second that business opened, he was on the phone. The morning after, Timothy basically died in his arms and he was on the phone at 9am the next day, calmly asking about collecting his check. The police also discovered that on this morning, so when he called the insurance provider, he was informed that he would need a death certificate for each policy he was going to collect on. So for the paperwork side of things, for this to work, each policy given out requires a copy of the death certificate of the deceased person named in the policy, which makes sense. So the funeral director told the police that the day after Halloween, after Ronald had obviously spoken to his insurance people, Ronald spoke to him and asked for six copies of his son's death certificate. Six. So we know about the $10,000 insurance policy. We know about the $20,000 insurance policy. Why did he need six copies of the death certificate? 
did he have other insurance policies that he's just never mentioned that he was like yeah i'm paying for cash keeping this on the down low as well and the insurance providers just maybe never made the link because maybe he didn't get in touch with them quick enough i i don't know but six copies of the death certificate the day after so the police had this information now and with this information they got themselves a warrant which i can't imagine was a difficult process for this so they went to the family's home and a search of the property yielded a pair of scissors and a kitchen knife both of which had pale purple plastic and sort of like a pale purpley plasticky waxy substance on on the blades the knife also had a substance which was crystalline in nature and contained sugar this was tested and it showed that the substances were very similar to the plastic tube of a pixie stick and the sugar inside but the tests couldn't confirm 100% that it was identical to this particular pixie stick it could only confirm that it was very similar in nature and makeup so Ronald was promptly arrested for the murder of his eight-year-old son on the 5th of November 1974. But the investigation didn't stop there. So the life insurance was a hell of a motive and it looked like a pretty open and shut case. But that didn't mean that the police were done because the more evidence, the better. So if Ronald was willing to murder both of his children for their life insurance policies and also the children of one of his best friends and some random ass trick or treater to make it look less suspicious, they needed to make sure the case was airtight and he couldn't get out of it because this is not a guy that you want to get out of it. So in August, two months before his son was killed, so this is all the stuff that the police found out later, so they kind of did some more digging around. They were like, hey, Ronald's friends, can you just like help us out with this? So Ronald asked his manager at the opticians he worked at if they could order some cyanide to clean gold glass frames. His manager remembers that this request was a bit fucking weird because admittedly cyanide did used to be used in the um, optical industry to clean gold gold glass frames however it hadn't been used for about 20 fucking years because it was so dangerous because they discovered actually cyanide is bad and dangerous and can really hurt you so they stopped using it so it was really strange for ronald to just suddenly ask out of the blue like hey can we order some of this really dangerous outdated chemical i guess it would be kind of like if you work on a building site and you suddenly ask your manager hey can we order some asbestos for this it would like, yeah, okay, it did get used, but now we don't use it anymore because we've discovered that it's very bad. So they didn't order any in because why would they? So Ronald had the audacity to ask again three weeks later and his boss was like, hey, dude, you're going to have to take this higher because this is unusual. So yeah, so he was he was keeping on about this and he discussed cyanide quite frequently with his colleagues and they would tell officials later that these discussions would fluctuate between talking about how opticians could use cyanide in the industry to how much it would take to kill people with it. And he talked about it enough that his colleagues could recall these conversations because it suddenly became his new favourite discussion. And I cannot imagine anything weird, anything weirder than just like being at work and then someone that you've worked with for a little while suddenly just starts talking about, hey, this really poisonous substance like let's discuss it like like it's just it's not gonna naturally come up in conversation can you imagine going to work and every day this random guy just tries to nonchalantly bring up cyanide in a discussion with you and bear in mind this dude had had 21 jobs in the last 10 years the chances are that he'd probably only been working at this opticians for about six months max this is just weird it's just weird 
So, and less than a couple of months before Timothy died, around this was around the beginning of September, Ronald got in touch with his friend Bobby Terry. And I just, also, side note, I love it when people have two first names. Like, earlier we had a Courtney Melvin, and now we've got a Bobby Terry. And I just, I love this. So, anyway, Bobby was employed by Arco Chemical Company, and he actually used to work with Ronald there, because remember how many different jobs he had? So one of the jobs was here at this chemical company. So he got in touch with his old friend, Bobby Terry. And what a shock. He wanted to talk about chemicals. And he told Bobby that he was taking a chemistry course at San... Oh God, how is this? I didn't Google how this was pronounced. San Jacinto? San Joaquinto? So he lied and told his buddy that he was in college in a chemistry course, and his teacher didn't know a great deal about different types of cyanide. Yeah, because that's a believable and really normal story to talk with your old colleague about. So, anyway, he and Bobby then discussed at length the different types of cyanide, so maybe to Bobby this was a perfectly normal conversation to have, maybe this was absolutely fine. And so they talked at length about the different types of cyanide you could get and how you could easily get hold of it. So he asked Bobby all about where he could buy it, and Bobby actually referred him to several different companies that, that sold cyanide. So he was like, yeah, I'll point you in some directions of some things. Um, and But at the end of their conversation, Bobby revealed that Ronald had asked him about the fatal doses of cyanide in humans, which was, of course, his favourite discussion topic. And then, and then, he asked him, how do police detect cyanide and other poisons in dead bodies? Yeah, he actually asked that. As if this... I mean, maybe Bobby didn't think the conversation was weird then, but maybe he thought it was weird after that. So Ronald took him up on his advice. So Ronald took up Bobby on his advice about where to get cyanide, and he went to one of the companies that Bobby had suggested, Curtin Matheson Scientific, which is based in Houston. So the employee who served Ronald that day, David Lee Jackson remembers him coming in because Ronald only wanted to buy a really small amount of the chemical. So David checked for him and the smallest option that they had was a five pound container, but Ronald didn't want it because it was too big. Um, his son might have ingested enough cyanide to kill a household of people, but even stupid Ronald knew that five pounds was way too much to be hauling around. So he discussed with David other places that might have smaller amounts of cyanide and then he left. I've not been able to find exactly where Ronald got the cyanide from, but he clearly was doing his research and he spent a long time and he left a significant trail of evidence in terms of how many fucking people he talked to about it to show that he was clearly trying to source it from somewhere. So like I said earlier, Ronald had been openly discussing with his buddies how he was expecting to come into significant money soon. So right before Halloween, he was talking to Jim Bates. This, this poor guy, Jim Bates, afterwards, he must have been like, oh shit, there was so many red flags that he just didn't see. And yeah, he must have felt like fucking shit about it. So right before Halloween, he was talking to Jim Bates about buying a new house. But weirdly, he asked Jim not to tell his wife, Danine, about it. So exactly a week before Halloween, he called the medical branch credit union, somewhere that it looks like he had some debt with, and he told them that he was expecting a large sum before the end of the year and signed an agreement extending payments to January 1975. So it was pretty open and shut at this point. Ronald was charged with one count of first degree murder and four charges of attempted murder. 
He really tried to take out four other children to make it seem like some random madman or for some insurance money. And it wasn't even like millions of dollars life insurance money. It was like, what? If if he'd killed Elizabeth as well, it would have been $60,000. With only Timothy, it was $30,000. He was will- He tried his best to kill both of his children for 60k. Which, by the sounds of it, wouldn't even taken out all of his debt. But then I guess who knows how many other insurance policies he had because he wanted six death certificates. But the whole thing is fucked up anyway, it's your own kids. Ronald pled not guilty, and some court's notes on this case, State versus O'Brien, say, quote, Other witnesses testified that the appellant's reputation for truth and veracity was very bad. End quote, which I found quite funny. So when I was reading the court notes, I stopped and had a little teehee, and so I just thought I'd include it because I just think it's kind of a bit of shade thrown by the court, and I thought it was funny. So both Ronald's sister-in-law and his brother-in-law testified that at the trial, on the day of Timothy's funeral, literally the day of the funeral, Ronald talked to family members about using the money from Timothy's life insurance policy to take a long vacation and buy other items. He wanted to get himself treats with the life insurance money. Not only that, but a damning testimony came from Janine O'Brien. So she testified that Timothy actually didn't choose the pixie stick from his collection before bed, that Ronald chose it for him. Elizabeth chose something else, and Ronald wanted to make sure that one of his children died that night. He selected it out and literally fed it to him when it wouldn't come out of the tube. So he wanted to kill both of his children, and he couldn't even wait till the next day. He had to have it now. It needed to be now. Ronald's defense attorneys used the urban myth of poisoned Halloween candy to try and get their client out of this fucking mess. So, you know, the whole story about a mad stranger handing out apples with razor blades in, or needles, or some other terrifying thing like that. It's a very popular, well-known urban legend, some creepy Halloween story, but there isn't one single documented case of a stranger handing out tampered with, poisoned, or otherwise harmful things at Halloween which have killed a child. It's literally never happened. Unfortunately, the vast majority of cases where a child is murdered, it ends up being someone in that child's immediate vicinity. And a lot of these stories about poisoned Halloween candy and stuff, even though these kinds of like urban legends and like scary Halloween stories were around before this Halloween in 1974, this case definitely blew it up and made it worse. And this case ruined Halloween for a lot of children in Texas and in this area because after this happened, even though it was revealed that actually it was Timothy's own father that had killed him, remember all of the parents in the area had to give their Halloween candy to the police. All the parents were absolutely fucking terrified that their child was going to start having convulsions and die. And don't forget as well, Ronald gave poison pixie sticks to three other neighborhood children, his own friend's kids and one randomer from church. So he tried to do it and parents, especially in this local area, were scared for years afterwards. Um, And yeah, that had an impact on a lot of people and a lot of little families in the area, which is scary and sad. So the trial lasted until the 3rd of June 1975 and his fate was decided by a jury. The jury only took 45 minutes to find him guilty on every count 
which is basically enough time to fill in the paperwork, and he was sentenced to death via the electric chair. The sentencing only took 71 minutes from the jury as well. So they were like, fuck this guy. Fuck this guy all the way up the butt. So Ronald obviously tried to appeal his sentence because he's an entitled piece of shit. And he appealed based on a few things, stuff like jury selection, witness veracity, and stuff like that. So one of the things that he appealed, he he did a load of fucking appeals. And I read through a lot of, I sort of skimmed some of them because I was like, this is just all bullshit. And one of the things he appealed was that the death penalty wasn't appropriate because it hadn't been proved that he had a likelihood to commit further acts of violence. This appeal and all the others were overruled. With the appeals, with each appeal and the appeal's denial or whatever, they have like a, a reason given, they have notes given to justify why it's been overruled. And the court statement for this particular one about the likelihood for him to commit further acts of violence was absolutely fucking baller and I'm going to read it to you. It's quite long, so get comfortable, but it's amazing. So quote, the calculated nature of the appellant's acts and forethought with which he coldly planned and executed his crime is certainly probative evidence of his propensity to commit further acts to commit i'm so sorry to commit further acts of violence a more calculated and cold-blooded crime than the one for which the appellant was convicted can hardly be imagined appellant murdered his child in order to collect life insurance money the record reflects months of premeditation and planning as Halloween neared, he took out new and additional life insurance policies on both of his children, made his diligent and successful search for the poison with which he was to use, set up plans to ensure that he would take the children trick-or-treating, bought the children Halloween costumes, and even began making plans to spend the money which he would collect upon the deaths of his children. Well before the carefully planned and executed murder, Appellant begun to consider buying a new house, paying off his debts, and even quitting his job. Appellant, in order to execute his plan to murder his, wait, in order to execute his plan to murder his son and to collect life insurance proceeds and to escape detection, in doing so, was willing and attempted to commit murder four more times. When he intentionally distributed the four additional poison pixie sticks to the other children, the likely and predictable result of his acts was to cause their deaths also. The lives which Appellant was willing to sacrifice in order to carry out the murder of his son included those of the two children of his good friend Jimmy Bates, and another child who attended Appellant's church, and his own daughter, whose life was also heavily insured. Thus, the jury had before it evidence of Appellant's willingness to murder the four other children in addition to the deceased, in order to carry out his scheme. These extraneous offences were certainly probative of his propensity to commit future acts. By his entire conduct, including the fact that the appellant, in such a deliberate and calculated way, took the life of his own child for money and jeopardised the lives of four others, the jury would have concluded that the appellant had a wanton and callous disregard for human life. The evidence is sufficient for the jury to have found that there is a probability that appellant would have committed criminal acts of violence that will constitute a continuing threat to society. End quote. Oh, I read that and I was like, damn, they like they just want to fuck this guy to jail forever. And yeah, I just thought that was great. So whoever wrote that, they were having a day. They had a cup of coffee and they were ready to go. Um, but yeah, I really enjoyed that part. So anyway, not long after he was convicted, Daneen divorced him. Fucking snaps Daneen. She did a good job. So once the evidence started piling up, she couldn't unsee it. So at first she was just panicking because her son was dead and her daughter was attempted 
dead. Um, so she was freaking out. And then once they started looking at Ronald, they were like, oh my god, they must have made a mistake. They're just looking at him because he was the one that had the, the candy. And then kind of once the evidence started piling up and he began to act kind of weird and the police were like, hey, this is really strange. She was like, fuck. It actually looks like my husband is a murdering piece of shit. And she was sort of, she had all these revelations come, but she visited him every day in prison and she wanted, she desperately wanted to believe that he was telling her the truth. Um, but then when he was found guilty, I think everything sort of clicked into place and she realized like, oh my God, he has actually been lying this entire time. So immediately after he was convicted she filed for divorce because she she knew deep in her heart that her husband had killed her son and attempted to kill her daughter and I cannot imagine what how much that would have fucked her up um his execution was stayed twice and the third date that it was scheduled for was Halloween night 1984 which was the eighth anniversary of Timothy's death and it seemed incredibly fitting. So much so that Judge Michael McSpadden personally offered to rearrange the execution date. He personally offered to drive Ronald O'Brien to the death chamber. He was like, I want this guy to die so much. I will put him in my car and take him there myself. That's the judge. But the thing is, that got stayed too when it came to it. And the fourth date would be March 31st, 1984. The electric chair wasn't used anymore and he was now set to die by lethal injection. An interview, in an interview before Ronald was executed, his ex-wife Danine talks about her experiences of the situation. So she remarried and she tried her best to pick up the pieces. She didn't want her new name being put out there because she had a new surname. And she was like, I don't want this getting out because I don't want a load of people knowing that this loser is my ex-husband. I don't want to be associated with him anymore. She forbade Elizabeth from having any contact with her father because obviously she was only five when all of that went down. So as she was growing up, Danine tried to shield her as much as possible. Um, where am I up to? Yeah, and, and I think as well, another thing that happened is Danine's new husband actually legally adopted Elizabeth as his own daughter, which I think is beautiful. Um, when asked about Ronald's upcoming execution, Danine said, quote, it's the end of a nightmare and the beginning of a brand new beginning. The slate will be wiped clean and we will get on with our life, end quote. And speaking about Elizabeth's handling of the situation, she said, quote, she has no ties to him. I think she's struggled through that, but she accepts the fact that he intended to kill her. We refer to him in this house as Ronald, and he is her biological father only and nothing more, end quote. Interestingly, Danine actually believes that she was the original intended victim for Ronald's plan, but once she made it obvious that she w wasn't willing to pay for more life insurance policies on her and Ronald, he secretly added more to the children's plans instead. Um, so she thinks that if she'd have if she'd have been a bit more liberal with like, yeah, we can afford more insurance, he would have just bought more insurance for the two of them and then bumped her off, which is terrifying. A few days before Ronald was executed, members of the media were allowed to visit the prison and ask questions to Ronald in jail. So it was kind of like a press conference type deal. So one journalist who went, Tony Pilkington, remembers how Ronald's demeanour was during this interview. And he said, quote, One of the first thing I noticed about O'Brien was how well-spoken he was compared to so many of the other prison inmates I'd covered. He appeared more educated and more literate than most inmates I'd met. End quote. Wait, no, that's not end quote. Sorry, it keeps going. I'm so sorry. 
he appeared more educated and more literate than most of the inmates I'd met, and he was working the room. With all the reporters and cameras gathered around him, he was doing his best to convince them of his innocence. As strange and bizarre as it was, O'Brien seemed as comfortable as any politician or PR person I'd covered, fielding questions at a press conference. And his eyes, like his demeanour, were cold and steely as he stared at the reporters on the other side of the window. I don't exactly remember what he said anymore, but I mostly remember O'Brien's confidence and comfort in saying it. To me, he seemed like a man who'd been locked up in prison for a long time that he'd convinced himself that he didn't do it. I guess I'll never know if he really believed his own story or if it was just a part of his tactic. End quote. Ronald was taken to the execution chamber and he made a statement of his last words, which, of course, was self-serving and showed no remorse or accountability, which is to be expected. And I have them here. So, quote, What is about to transpire in a few moments is wrong. However, we as human beings do make mistakes and errors. This execution is one of those wrongs, yet doesn't mean our whole system of justice is wrong. Therefore, I would like to for- oh god what a piece of shit therefore I would like to forgive all who have taken part in any way in my death also to anyone I've offended in any way during my 39 years I pray and ask your forgiveness just as I forgive anyone who offended me in any way and I pray and ask God's forgiveness for all of us respectively as human beings to my loved ones I extend my undying love to those close to me I know in your hearts I love you one and all God bless you all, and may God's blessings always be yours. Ronald C. O'Brien. P.S. During my time here, I have been treated well by all TDC personnel. End quote. He literally doesn't mention his son once in his last words. If he had genuinely been locked up for the murder of his son, which he didn't do, if he was genuinely innocent, you'd think in his last moments he would be thinking about his dead son. But he doesn't mention Timothy once he tells the people that put him in jail that he forgives them he asks for god's forgiveness he ex- he says that he extends his love to his loved ones but he he talks about himself and his own death but he doesn't he doesn't mention timothy at all not by name not by saying my son by nothing literally nothing and it just shows that even in his last moments all he could think about was himself He was strapped to the gurney and he died by lethal injection shortly after midnight, March 31st, 1984. A crowd of about 300 people was gathered outside, some protesting the death penalty because they just don't like the death penalty in general, and some people were in support of Ronald's death. Those wanting him to die had big signs with them that had things about, like, Halloween puttings on them, basically. Um, And they yelled, trick or treat, as the clock nearer the hour, which is... Honestly, I find it kind of funny. And even funnier, some of these people pelted candy at the anti-death penalty protesters. Um, Yeah. So I'm not sure... I think I've probably said it before. I don't... I'm not in support of the death penalty. I don't think we as a society have the right to take the life of another human being away. I generally don't think that we have the right to do that. But I think people like this, people who are clearly just willing go around killing people we we don't really need people like that um i don't think like a sort of communal way of killing other people is necessarily right but there definitely needs to be a way that they kind of stay where they can't hurt anyone so i'm kind of i'm definitely more in favor of a life without parole 
for people like this rather than death. But in on the other hand, whereas I'm not pro Ronald being killed by lethal injection, I'm not sad that he was killed either. So make of that what you will. I'm very undecided. We don't have the death penalty in England at all. So it's not something that in this country is kind of a pressing thing. Apart from the fact that lots of... So there's like a certain type of person and it tends to be the kind of people who like read the Daily Mail and have England flags hanging outside their house that every time there's like a pedo on the news or someone kills someone else, they're like, oh, bring back hanging. Like, because obviously in England the death penalty used to be hanging, so people tend to like to just say bring back hanging like that's gonna fucking fix everything but i just think also it's not worth i know nobody asked me for my opinions on the death penalty but i guess here we are um obviously every now and then a completely innocent wrongly convicted person will get the chop and that's awful and irredeemable and there's absolutely no way that we should be doing that so yeah yeah that's just it's not worth the risk of killing someone who didn't do anything at least if someone's in prison without parole, it's shit and horrible, but they're still alive. And if they did do it, then they deserve for it to be shit and horrible. Anyway, that's kind of my opinion. Um, but yeah, that's 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 the story. So um, happy Halloween, I guess. Um, if you're listening to this and it's Halloween, I hope that you've had a wonderfully spooky day. Um, if you like the rain as much as me, I hope it's raining on this Halloween for you. If you don't like it, then... At least I hope it's raining where I am, but I hope it's not raining where you are. Um, But I hope you've had a nice day, and I hope you have a little treat. I hope you get yourself a little snack. Um, And I hope you spare a moment to think about Timothy O'Brien, who also loved Halloween just like we do. And he wanted to have a really nice time, and something really terrible happened to him when it shouldn't have by the person who was post in the world, most in the world, to take care of him. And so just spare a thought for him, and spare a thought for his mum and his sister. And just stay safe, don't talk to strangers, be nice, and yeah. But only be nice to people who deserve it. If people are cunts, then then fuck those guys. Um, but yeah, um, thanks for listening. I hope that you enjoyed my telling of this awful story. Um, because obviously we're all into awful stories and we all are fascinated by them for some reason. But I hope that you enjoyed me telling you about this one. I hope that if you've heard it before, I hope that I was able to teach you something new and about it. And if you haven't heard it before, I hope that you got something from it. You you learned a thing. Um, yeah, most of my lessons that I like to give at the end are like, don't trust people. And this is kind of also the same, except it's, it's hard not to trust your parents. But yeah, I don't know. Anyway, um, yeah, I hope you're all having a good time. And I hope you're all good. Sorry, it's, it's getting kind of late, but it's not really that late. It's only half nine, but I'm an old lady. But yeah, thanks for listening. Please leave me a five-star review because I'm needy and desperate for your approval. And if you have money to buy me a coffee and you would like to buy me a coffee, there is a link in the description of the show. But you absolutely do not have to at all. Um, if you would like to show your support in a non-financial way, like I said, a review would be great. Um, follow me on Instagram. I'll put up pictures on the Instagram from the case. Um, it's Creeps and Crime Storytime. Please do message me on Instagram or leave a comment if you have a case recommendation or if you just want to talk about true crime because I love talking about true crime. And yeah, thanks. Bye!